Hello, everybody. It is quite terrifying <coughs> to hear yourself described in those terms and be reminded yet again that what a CV looks like has no resemblance whatsoever to how your life path has felt, how your nerves have been, how your grey hair has been progressing, and all the rest. This is a wonderfully squeaky clean version of what I would say is like, for many of us, a messy, circular, explore, exploratory kind of life. And you'll be thankful to know that's not the topic of the conversation today, although there might be the odd little reference. So thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, please wave if you can't hear me. So choice is a terrible thing. And when Sophie Peterson and John gave me this very flattering invitation, it was completely open-ended. And knowing that, you know, Lady White had been this completely invisible person throughout my whole time, my very happy time at St. John's, I was intrigued. But I was also very daunted because, you know, women's issues. Are you going to talk about history? Are you going to talk about culture? Where the hell do you start? Especially with an audience like you, which has got an IQ, which is somewhat higher than, than the average, which is somewhat higher. You know, you know the picture. And I thought the one thing I'm not going to do is be scientific, sensible, logical, predictable, or verbal. So you're not going to see a single PowerPoint apart from this one, which has any words on it. But I am very interested, and I'm getting more interested as I grow older, in this whole question of narrative or of story. Story of me, trying to figure out who the hell I am and where I'm going and why. The story of we, you, an extraordinary cohort of young people who've already succeeded, but are now going to create quite different and unpredictable ways ahead. And the story of us, because John did reference that word global. Um, it has been the defining framework for my own work in the last 20 years. And I feel passionately that people of talent and empathy need to deploy those talents in the global space, whatever they're doing in their day-to-day -day lives. So without more ado, I need to warn you. In fact, I should have put a health warning up on this, on this uh, next slide. I'm going to take you through not the seven ages of man or indeed women, but seven little sort of hooks or images which I use to try and organise my own rather messy thoughts. And they are, first of all, um, Golden Arrow. Secondly, Invisibility Cloak. The third is the Can-Can. The fourth is Crazy Mirrors. The fifth is the Boa Constrictor. The sixth, I think, is the Particle Accelerator. And the seventh is the Brave New World. So if you want to leave now, they haven't locked the doors. You are welcome to. So first of all, the Golden Arrow. OK. So for those of you who are not in my glorious crowd of friends and alumni here, and you're still here, you're still young. And the fact you're here means that you've had a stellar trajectory to get to somewhere as beautiful and special as this. But it's been linear. You can't get the kind of accolades and success that you've managed to do without absolutely grinding away at the coalface to get those exam results and hopefully some grade eight distinctions and some Duke of Edinburgh awards and all the rest of it alongside. <coughs> the metrics of success are very rigorous and they're very narrow. So here you are now, the success story with bright lights ahead of you. But this is where it already starts to feel complicated and scary because Life is not the golden arrow, up, down, whichever direction. Life is much more like this. Now, I'm wearing this, and my lovely husband took a long time to try and get a photograph that captured the beauty. 
This is a bracelet following a motif by the Hopi tribe in New Mexico. And on the right, you have Cocopelli, the fertility symbol, and in the middle, you have man in the maze of life. I was given my bracelet, which has the two symbols, when I first became a parent. And I've never been on an aeroplane since without wearing it. Because for me, it's about, as a parent, it's about how you can watch over, but you cannot choose the paths. And you who are right in that entry point to your maze of your lives, you don't know which way the path is going to take you. And you're probably being very diligent around all the research, around the thinking, the planning, the careers office, internships ticked off, but you can't know and you won't know. And I only have to look at my very loyal crowd of friends whose presence here means so much to me to think of the unexpected hardships and setbacks and joys and successes that each of them has faced to know that that is our strength as well as our challenge going forward. So now, the invisibility cloak. I don't know if you can actually see her. I, t I googled invisibility cloak because I thought, well, I know Harry Potter back to front and I should think most of you do too. But I thought about invisibility first in the context of Lady White. As John said, he, didn't, he never told me about the money laundering piece. I didn't know that, I didn't know St. John's had been founded on money laundering, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that bit out for the time being. But isn't it interesting that it's only within the last couple of years that St. John's can welcome its first female president, Maggie Snowling, and that we now have that moment when women who've been instrumental in the history of the college are getting more visibility. I'm always astounded by how much is hidden and yet critical, just as we have those little termite ants building those incredible termite hills in Africa, but you never actually see who does the work. And <laughs> I, I am going to behave. I am going to behave. So I thought this image was rather nice. This also came up when I was, when I was trying to find images for Invisibility Cloak. So a Chinese woman on her bicycle with her baby, but the, baby's, but the bicycle has disappeared. And it makes me think as an image of resilience. And we are, of course, in the centenary year of World War I, where women had, of course, already been fighting for their rights and these opportunities before the war ever started. And the war catalyzed that. And, you know, as Millicent Fawcett said, it found them serfs and left them free. Well, the notion of freedom was, of course, relative. But the strength <coughs> of women to keep on chipping away, finding new avenues, dealing with challenge, putting themselves at risk, here, wider Europe, rest of world, is something that I continue to be awed, awestruck by. And I just like this image because whether you are a working mother, somebody running a unit from home, somebody juggling a PhD in a theatre production, you know what it's like. You don't know if the ground is very solid underneath you, but you carry on. And when we ride a bike, we no longer think about how we once learnt. We just keep our eyes straight ahead and we keep going. And that is actually critical um, at all periods of our life. Now, this I like for all sorts of reasons, particularly because those physiques would never even get a look in in today's magazines. <clears throat> but here we have the women holding up the man. And what I love about this is that the changes and the ways in which men more and more joyfully and actively are changing the whole configuration of family life is huge, special, and to be celebrated. But I still have this amazing thing, even being married to one of the best. I want to, I just want to make sure you heard that. 
that there are certain things that are just implicitly still in a female realm that men simply know will happen. Christmas is one. <laughs> is there a single honest man in this room who's ever stopped once to think, where are the presents, the cards and the turkey coming from? They're very good with shopping lists, but the thinking and the multitasking is one of those things that if you could take a scientific cross-section of the brain and see just how many departments and avenues women's brains went into, it would be awesome. This is not uh, a rant. This is because the skill sets involved are going to be the critical skill sets for our personal and professional success going forward in the 21st century. So I promised can-can. This can-can for me, what's it about? It's about conformity and uniformity. And as I get older and maybe more grudge-worthy and embittered and unpleasant, I worry more and more about how we prize conformity. We think we don't, we do. I think we're prizing it more and more and it makes no sense. I think we prize conformity in girls and women much more than we will admit. And I think I touched on the school process before. I found myself saying as the mother of both boys and girls in the past, girls are ready to go to school at two, boys at nine. But for anybody here who's got a brother, a sister, who is a boy, who is a girl, think to the roots of your own experiences. Think first to the home. And maybe I've got a wonderful mother who's still going very strong and I adore her. But if she would come into the, house, into the room and say, who's going to help me with the table? Who cracked first? It's this fatal weakness. And I probably still hate my brothers for it. It's a silly example at one level. But it is, in fact, revealing because change comes from within. And you have to understand yourself and those patternings to also see what are the drivers for the next generation to have a fairer and more confident sharing and assumption of roles that go well beyond laying the table. The conformity, of course, is also in the way we're expected to look, the way we're punished if we don't meet the grade. But it also applies, for example, to the way in which schools will analyse and reward ways of being, ways of working. For example, it's far more acceptable for a boy to be disruptive. Boys will be boys. A girl who is behaving in relatively comparable ways is much more quickly seen as awkward and somehow not fitting into the norm. Of course, you can then have your celebrated rebels. There are many, many people who luckily litter our public life who will celebrate the fact they got expelled. The two best historians that I know from my school were both expelled. So, you know, maybe there's something in that that you have to kick against the pricks in order to get out. But I just like that image in terms of that effort of perfection, that effort of fitting into what is seen as somebody else's metric. So the question of the confidence to challenge that metric is something that challenges me um, as I move forward in my life. I think about it far more than I did when I was 30, um, but perhaps also because of had, having had a rather unusual circumnavigation of a career along the way. Now, I talked about crazy mirrors. I don't know how well you can see that. But this shows, you know, the crazy mirrors we all know so well from our childhoods. Uh, the long, tall one, the one that I never managed to be, and the person who sees herself in the mirror and immediately multiplies her width by ten. That's me. Now, those, again, may seem like harmless, this is what we do, this is a game, and so on. But when you actually look at 
that pattern of applying another lens to our self-perception, it is actually cumulatively quite uh, an erosive process. And I think that one of the glorious things about getting to the great age to be celebrated to 50 is that you have increasing freedom to say, I don't give up, whatever. Um, and in the audience, one of my very dearest friends, Sarah Wheeler, wrote an extraordinary book to celebrate her own 50th with extraordinary pieces of travel writing. And that sense of energy and joy from people who finally clicked that we don't need to accept these, these restrictions uh, is, is truly inspiring. But we're our own worst enemies. You know, that mirror, it's a tyrant because the perception links into the reality. I became a barrister, and I remember on my first day being told by one of my dear colleagues, you know, I think you'll be good, but it is a shame. You're not the build to be a barrister, and your hair won't work. <laughs> and I sort of did a double take, and he said, well, you know, the bar was made for tall, balding men, because the wig covers up the balding, and they've got the shoulders to carry it off. In a lesser way, my, my brother once told me I, didn't have the, I wasn't the build to be pregnant. So, you know... <laughs> But I, I couldn't resist, I hate to say it, from the Daily Mail. Looking in the mirror does make you more anxious about your looks. Okay, so how many people spend 10 minutes looking at themselves in the mirror and get more anxious as a result? Yeah, you're all very, you're all very sane and balanced. Uh, I would love to know who commissioned the research to count the number of times that women were looking into the mirror <laughs> each day. Okay. But here, I don't know how well you can see it. I'm sure most of you know this picture. Berlusconi and Sarkozy are enjoying watching a woman picking up their name tags from their feet. Obama is trying to pretend he's not looking. And uh, over on the left-hand side, uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure whether they know what's going on, but they're certainly about to cotton on. Again, at one level, a silly picture with a, sharp, a, a sharp-eyed photographer. At another level, because I would never have got that job, because I wouldn't have qualified to be pretty enough and tall enough and thin enough to be the, to be the person who picks up the labels. <laughs> above, and be, above and beyond... Well, I'm not tall enough to be a policewoman either. Uh, above and beyond that, uh, there is, of course, no woman in the picture. Now, if Angela Merkel was there, we'd have a slight improvement, but not by much. And still, if you were to do a Google search about what is commented on in our leaders in the public space. Poor old Angie, whose who's tasting clothes is not usually going to get nothing but flattering comments. My father used to say about Margaret Thatcher, at least she's got balls. And those, those stereotypes and those sort of sets of assumptions are actually, again, cumulatively corrosive and toxic as women think about the roles that they want to take on. And I emphasise want in the public space, and I'll come back to that. Okay, so this is my boa constrictor. I did try to find a photo of a real snake that had, you know, there's been this thing going around, going viral recently about a snake that went and ate a crocodile. Um, but even for you hardened souls, I thought this would perhaps be not quite the right, uh, the, the right image to show. What am I trying to depict with that image? Thinking about bulge, thinking about constriction. We talk a lot about incredible opportunities and you, the students in this room, whatever your age, can see your lives opening up in extraordinary ways and just 
just unbelievable potential that lies ahead of you. But I think a very important question that we need to be looking at with our eyes wide open is just how real is that window? We talk about the squeezed middle. Think about it in terms of career paths now. Children, if we choose to have them, if we're lucky enough to be able to have them, are tending to come later. We're lucky that our parents are living longer. And at the moment, the thinking about the practicalities, the delivery of childcare, and the practicalities and the delivery of elder care are quite disproportionately still vested in women. It's back to what I said about Christmas. It's the thinking part that should not be neglected. It's not just about who gets in the car on a Sunday morning. I mention that because in terms of the way we actually are able, thinking of that maze that I showed on the bracelet, to continue to discover ourselves, to take new adventures, to take new risks, uh, it's very difficult for us to do that when we are constantly juggling and indeed we'll be juggling a wider set of generational requirements. We add into that the fact that for many of us, the idea that grown-up children may be able to afford a place of their own to live is shrinking in many parts of the world. And therefore, the intergenerational juggling piece that women have supremely managed in the past is perhaps going to get more complicated. And therefore, the whole social compact, I don't say sexual compact, the social compact within which we each operate and that we each have a hand in shaping is going to need to shift because we need to think about whole life planning in a way that allows us to fully flourish and be fully human through that maze of life. I think at this point I also want to indulge myself perhaps <coughs> by stopping and thinking back to my own journey and why I think that this bulge matters because I have the great fortune to be at this sort of probably halfway point of my life when suddenly it's like, whoa, it's again that feeling of the sky is the limit. And I don't think there's any better feeling that a woman or a man can have. So as John said, uh, I started in English literature and then went and worked in um, a corporation in London, got a business management training around newspapers, just at the time when new technology, new te trade union practices and Margaret Thatcher were overturning the whole landscape of newspaper production. And it was very male, it was very aggressive, it was very stressful, and it was not at all as prestigious or in any way as good as the training jobs that all my cohort from St John's went into. I got pretty depressed. It was very difficult. I saw nothing, but I cocked up. I got it wrong. I turned down one, two, three, four, five jobs, and I've ended up with Robert Maxwell. <laughs> and I do remember because I had to get my own back at John. John, at the after-degree after party, he was like, what the are you doing going off with that plonker, Maxwell? <laughs> um, now, I can see a sense. Yeah, you remember it too. You, you know. We fell out over it. because <laughs> uh, the, When you are in the thick of it, it's very easy to see what went wrong, to use the word failure, to compare yourself to your peers, and again, because we have a narrow metric of success, we're not sure what we want to reward in society, and so we do ourselves down, men or women, but women are very good at doing themselves down. And how do you get out of what you perceive at the time to be a wrong turning? I think the first thing is to say, 
there are no wrong turnings. Your working lives or your active lives and your physical lives are going to be longer than at any time in history. You have the time. And if we can just get rid of this fear of failure, this toxicity of labels, and understand that a step that went sideways may allow you to re-enter a pathway in a different and altogether more interesting way, that would be an enormous step forward. In my case, because I ended up, because of Robert Maxwell being at odds with the law, I ended up, without a law degree, actually representing my company in, in, in front of the industrial tribunal and having to learn the hard way about what law was in the public space, which is why I then went and became a barrister. And again, as these chances will take you, I was a junior baby barrister on a big House of Lords case at a time when I couldn't, there wasn't even a woman's loo in the House of Lords robing room. But the case involved the issue of the reproductive rights of mentally handicapped adults. And so it became one of those ethical cornerstone cases that was happening in British society. And I realized, I think for the first time in my life, about responsibility and the responsibility of people who have talent, application, brains, and creativity to at least understand what these shifting tectonic plates are in our world. And be able to master them so that at the very least you can be literate, you can avoid populism and oversimplification, and hopefully you can bring tolerance and wisdom to whatever the debate that is going on, because those qualities are in short supply. And we see that grossly at the moment in this dangerous year that we see unrolling in front of us. And I think it's a duty of people who have had the good fortune, who've worked for the good fortune um, of people in this room. So moving on, I then became a barrister and then did another wrong move if we apply the, right, the correct metrics, which was to fall in love, to marry and to follow the man because we had the chance to go to Paris. And at that point, another test came into my head and I recommend this one heartily. If I live to be 90, perhaps we should say 100 now because we're all going to live so long. If I live to be 90, what do I want to look back on with pride? Now, it's a cliche to say that no one ever died wishing they'd spent more time in the office, but it's also a cliche to say that we know that and we still are struggling to get out from under the deluge of emails. So, thinking of the bigger picture, thinking in terms of visuals, what feels joyful and exciting if you imagine yourself as a, a wonderful, feisty elderly man or, or lady looking back? So for me, at that point, things became clearer. Professionally, it was suicide. I had become a barrister. I had ticked it. My dad was the happiest man on the planet because he had great stories about sex in Essex to take down to the pub every Friday because you do see life as a barrister. Uh, so at one level, I disappointed. And I also undercut the return on the whole investment, which is involved when you go back to studying. But at the same time, we embarked on an adventure that we thought would be three years and ended up for 21 years. And in the course of that, again, that web of life that I showed you on the bracelet took its own new turnings because that understanding, particularly as somebody who's grown up in Britain, of being fully bicultural, fully bilingual, of just living life and seeing life through the prism of another culture is terribly important. It changes the entirety of the way in which you approach so many issues because you are intuitively having to balance 
different and competing demands, just as a skilled teacher is always having to think about trade-offs, fairness, equity and balancing within the microcosm of a classroom or a staff room. And so pulling those strands together, I then did my postgrad in uh, international environmental law and launched my own work for 20 years around international environmental policy, traveling all over the world and dealing with issues of water, conflict, uh, biodiversity, all kinds of things. But let me circle back round to that conformity picture, those crazy mirrors pictures I showed you earlier. I'm somebody who doesn't even have biology O-level. And I was a good student. I did something which was considered very, very, very uh, reprehensible. And my mother had a formal letter from the school uh, because I chose textile design over biology. There were two reasons. One was I love colour and texture. But the bigger reason was because on the last day when you're going to choose your subject, you know how it is, teachers tell you, they, they do their beauty parade and they try and sell you their subject. And the biology teacher had us all there and she said, right girls, the this at this point was an all-girls school, uh, right girls, the first project we're going to do for biology A-level, O-level, is to take your heights and weights when you were babies and your heights and weights now and look at the correlations. And that is the reason I did not do biology, <laughs> because I did not want to be publicly weighed in a class of 14-year-old girls. So the fact that I then had 20 years of working at quite a high level as the only lawyer in teams of leading global scientists, and I didn't even have it, has been something that has been rather embarrassing. Uh, it didn't make a blind bit of difference, because what I circle around to there is that a smart person can learn just about anything they will ever need. Of course, you know, you're not going to become a neurosurgeon when you're 50 if you don't have the roots. But if you think about the 21st century skill set, and any management consultancy website is going to put exactly the same things up, or the Saeed Business School, or anywhere here, you know, what do we need? Empathy, flexibility, critical thinking, compassion, uh, etc. You know the package of skills, and they are very often seen as being female skills. So we have them, and we need to use them, but we need to believe and have confidence in our ability to use them, and understand that we need to shift those metrics forward as well. So there's our bulge, and this challenge of how we can make the most of it, how we can spread that bulge, and how we can get away from the linear track of the snake at all. So we come to this glorious thing, the glass ceiling, which some people believe in profoundly and some people will furiously deny. Uh, the little, the very small text at the bottom over there says, it's all in the mind. The inquiry by a management group found that three quarters of women in senior jobs believe there is a glass ceiling. So if you say it's all in the mind, because they believe it, it seems to be a bit of a funny twist on this particular caption. Um, I was asked uh, just before I started talking, had I encountered a glass ceiling? I have to be fair and honest and say no, but because I've taken a non-standard path. I ran my own business for 21 years on the environmental policy side and was able to go in at very senior levels because of the contracts I worked on. However, I saw many, many, many people in deep frustration, not necessarily because of a glass ceiling, but more because of the boa constrictor feeling, that the talents, the aspirations, the vocation that they took into their job, whether in the media, in the European Commission, the United Nations, and so on, 
were not really being fully leveraged, fully optimised, or somehow delivering what they thought they would have in their careers. And that there was the, the rub. They had better salaries, better benefits, and certainly more security than I did. But that lack, fundamentally, of a feeling of freedom to move on and take on new things was also quite corrosive for them. Right. So the question of pay difference. <laughs> I couldn't resist this one. Now, again, I, this, is a, this is a picture presentation, so I'm not giving you statistics. You can go to the World Economic Forum's website or anywhere to see that these corrosive differences in pay do still persist. Uh, I think what I'm discovering now that I, for the first time since the age of 24, am now in salaried employment, is that the whole question of protection around parenting is very challenging. I'm now, as John said, uh, Chief Programme Officer for an International Policy Foundation and have the great privilege to have a terrific team that I work with. At the same time, because we're into long-term planning and intellectual and human capital, it's actually very difficult to think ahead when you have the balancing out of, the, of, of, of maternity and paternity leave. So I'm trying to navigate and better understand that myself. And I think it's just part of these challenges that we have, as I talked about before, coming back to the compact that we have to frame going forward that is not about women and it's not about men. It's about together looking at what makes sense, particularly in ageing societies where we need these female skills much more actively deployed. But there is good news as well. I'm sure many of you know this fantastic image uh, here, but this comes from the building and entrepreneurs trades. Women are finding other routes as well as the established ones to create, to innovate, and to show that they can be uh, extraordinarily successful in starting up, uh, starting up companies. The reason we hear all these success stories, and yet we still have this conformity boa constrictor tendency too. So we need to link up these pieces in terms of trying to think, how can we go forward more successfully? I'm sorry this is a bit blurred, but I think you can get the idea. The archetypes around women being successful are very complicated. Uh, you know them as well as I do. But whether it's the myths around you know, sleeping away on the director's couch or having to be the most beautiful person on the block, or having to trample down, having to lean in, lie back. It's pretty <laughs> bewildering. And men don't get these, these earnest books telling them how to be. And sometimes I just get so mad when yet another bestseller hits the top of the list, telling me and my kind how we're supposed to be. Um, because at one level it feels patronising and old school, at the other, it feels highly topical and the absolute must-read for my 18-year-old daughter. So I think we have to accept that it's not about black and white. It's about feelings of being uncomfortable in the way that some of this discourse goes forward, um, particularly perhaps when it's led by people who, by many standards, are seen as unfeasibly successful compared with us ordinary mortals. Now, this cartoon was, came from uh, a newspaper around about the time of a set of elections. So, you know, we see Big Ben smiling at us with the sun above it. 
Uh, and then we think about the number of women who are able to be active in politics and all the constraints that apply there. The figures are still shamefully low in Britain and in many parts of Europe, although not all. They're going up very fast in much of Africa where positive, uh, positive quota policies have been applied. Um, but we still have remarkably few women heads of state. And I, I think that, again, it's important when we come back to thinking about this question of responsibility, not in terms of we've got a duty to go off and become um, MPs or whatever, but in terms of really understanding what it takes to have a vibrant political participation process and making sure that we don't abdicate from supporting those roles to be able to be open to members of both sexes. Now we're coming back to this glass ceiling. This is my particle accelerator picture. Uh, so how do we take the things that we know we're absolutely bloody amazing at in this room and how do we actually believe in it and trust in ourselves, men as well as women, to really get where we want to go? I, coming back to my own journey, we had been in Paris for 21 years and I reached what anybody here who's had children will recognise, that moment where you do have a window where there's a change of school cycle and when new things can be imagined. And it was an interesting moment in that run up to the Magic 50 of thinking, what else could be out there? Yes, of course, there's things like you need to earn a living. There's kids, there's universities, there's da-da-da. But it wasn't just that. It's what else is out there? And sitting down together and saying, well, OK, we could actually go anywhere, provided that it's affordable for family and friends to get to. <coughs> It's interesting and attractive. I didn't want to go to somewhere worthy, but, you know, aesthetically <coughs> dull. Um, and it must be something that the children also feel an identity with, feel proud of. Not in terms of patting mummy on the back, but just in terms of having something where you can hold your head up and say, OK, as I march towards my next decade, this is something that is authentic. And I find myself using the word authentic more in this decade than I've ever done in my life. And perhaps that reflects my own journey of thinking about what is coherent across these muddled different parts of our identities. And so we came to Salzburg, a place where I had never even visited before I, I, I took up my job. But the reason I mention this is because it took me to that age of then 48 when I, for the first time since the age of 24, started looking at job advertisements, I mean, not for sending your CV to be a consultant, but actually looking at job advertisements, I realised, first of all, I was terrified. Second, I had absolutely no idea how to turn what was a rather professionally schizophrenic kind of career into something that would fit inside the boxes of people looking for jobs. Uh, and thirdly, that I had worked in a very private way because of the nature of being self-employed, I was very involved in my teams, but my workspace was quite private. As I say, somebody who's a writer and so on might also have a very private, intimate workspace. And the big development for me, and I'm rather embarrassed that it took me to 48 to get there, was to reach out to a small group of very trusted friends and be very insecure and very weak and very wobbly and very worried and so on. Some of them are here today and they were just amazing, men and women. That taught me a really important lesson, which is, and no, don't wait till you're 48, that there is no right, there is no failure. You are all each other's best support mechanisms. 
for helping to navigate the wonderful opportunity that is life. And in my case, when I did get this job, having thought there was just not a hope in hell that I would get this job, as, you know, in the end, a woman who'd had three children who'd been running a business from home, I got such extraordinary torrents of emails from people I'd never met, but who had been given my details by this inner core of girlfriends, saying, you've given me the confidence to have a go at X or Y or Z. It wasn't necessarily paying work. It was perhaps doing something in the village. But it was interesting to see that there is this huge, there's an unmet need and there's an untapped resource in each of us and in the world that surrounds us. And I think that having the confidence to take love and support and clever ideas and shrewd criticism from your friends to help you find the right way for you is something that I'm glad I've learned even rather late in, in life. Now, you can't see all of what Cheryl is talking about, but I think that most of you have probably read or looked at uh, Cheryl Sandberg's well-known book, uh, Lean In. And she's now, this is just a couple of days ago, uh, this, this on the web, uh, the looking at this whole question of labels. Now, labels are very pernicious, and you will know, you're smart people, you know, I'm not going to bore you with how words are used differently about women than about men. We know it, but it is very, very corrosive indeed. I think that for the very basic thing, people lucky enough to be somewhere like this, need to be very careful how they use labels. Think about that language. It's very destructive when people are reaching up to start something new, be it a community project in Africa, be it a promotion in the middle of the centre city of London, and to feel the backbiting. So I do say, as a literature graduate, women beware women. I have been personally hurt by people who wish me nothing but good to hear, for example, you're overwhelmed. People can be tired, people can be challenged, people can be learning, but the same word is not used of men who are working very hard in the office. There are ways of projecting outwards that an expectation that women cannot combine the roles which finds a reflection in all kinds of ways. And I think that is an area where we need to be uh, quite vigilant. Um, I do, do want to add, though, that on the right-hand side, the BBC had lined up things that you know, they thought would also be interesting. And the second <laughs> item is, which should come first, cheese or pudding? So <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, I don't know, you're probably all too young here to remember when Tony Blair, an alumnus, came into power uh, and he brought in lots and lots and lots of women, Blair's babes. And Nicolas Sarkozy did the same. And <laughs> Francois Hollande, uh, please don't laugh, has also gone and done the same, bringing in lots of women. So at one level, these kind of photographs, which are the sort of, you know, the, the quota ticking trophy, trophy shots, attract a lot of ire in some feminist press. At another level, they're incredibly important because they go back to this question of invisibility. You must put the, the contribution of women out there, even if it can feel tokenist. But coming back again to this question of think what you do in your jobs. I couldn't find it when I did some archive research. But when Sarkozy came to power and did the same thing as Blair, the Daily Telegraph ran two, a two-full-page spread with a photograph of every single Blair babe and every single Sarkozyette with a fashion commentator talking about the hair, the heels, the height, the weight and what makeover was required. 
Um, I'm glad to say that some blog sites did exactly the same for the men who came out worse on every possible quarter. <laughs> but the broadsheets are never going to do it about the men. And again, while it may seem trivial to make the point, it's not. These are the people who will run countries. This is the message that is being sent to your children of the future. And it's very important that there is some kind of uh, moving beyond this tired and trivial kind of uh, uh, representation. And the last point before I move on, I must be careful on time. This representation of race, the race, the competing, the endless trying to get ahead of things and somehow sort of out-trump the other, is, I think, uh, a way... a. A banal and overused way of representing what happens in the public space. And I think it's also a reason why women find it, who think in this more linear and connected way, find it rather hard to identify with this sort of, you know, winner takes all mentality because it feeds back into, well, we won't engage in case we fail. And so trying to think more creatively about does extraordinary contribution in each sphere of our lives have to be equated to the race to the top, I think, is a very important question. So finish, I'm going to skip past a little bit, but this, was, this is my final thing, Brave New World. And I liked it because um, that great continuum of time, we're just a blip, but we're a blip that can make a difference. But it also represented all the things around, like globular clusters and bulge, older stars and things like that, which I thought was somehow quite, quite apposite. Okay. A quick, a few, <laughs> a few slides, just to shift our focus to the outside world and to do what I've tried to do, which is to connect what is coming from within, from within the home, from within the school, to the big global issues that are being played out around us, even if you don't feel it so strongly in the middle of Oxford. Reproductive rights is obviously one. I can tell you from experience that in the United Nations, if reproductive rights comes up, the debate has to close down because we go back to proxy, nas national positions get rigidified and the debate has to stop. <laughs> this is, for those of you who may know, the charming storybooks painted by uh, the Katie Morag stories from a little girl on a Scottish island. And the author um, has also painted the watercolours. Here in the picture, she's breastfeeding. American booksellers required that picture to be taken out of the book before the book could be sold in the States. Well, the reason I found the picture was because I heard the author interviewed on Desert Island Discs, but when I went to look for it on the net, I found it on the, the Alpha Parent website, which really scared me as well, because in the same way as the word tiger mum is the most terrifying language in the, that exists. Alpha parent is pretty terrifying too, because it implies this completely impossible conception of perfection. This is uh, an organisation in Africa working to enable teenage girls to continue to be able to go to school even if they happen to have a period. And this is generating jobs, community activities, and obviously huge educational advantages. This kind of practical thing we need to know about it there are millions denied education just because they happen to be girls this relates to human trafficking which is on the rise it affects men and women we talk about globalization and we sing its benefits but we have a duty as well to really understand even when it comes to 
the people we may give jobs to in the future, the terms we may give for people we employ, just where real social justice lies. The issue of threats to women are not just confined to the poor countries far away. There are taboos in every society, and this is not confined to socioeconomically deprived people. I dealt with uh, the National Sex Abuse Inquiry when I was a junior barrister, and I think that the toxicity of taboos in our society is again an area where we have an absolute responsibility to be alert and to react and to join together and not shy away from things that are really happening on a colossal scale. This hasn't come out very well, but this is uh, from uh, an organisation against trafficking just with people putting on, assuming a face. Just because problems are far away and anonymous and it's just hard for us to get our minds around them doesn't mean that in the way we choose who we're going to buy our jeans from or our spices from or anything, that we can't leverage the influence. I was a student here when apartheid was still active and where we boycotted Barclays. Little things matter and we shouldn't forget that and that's a message that we can take through back to the home as well. So finally, uh, where do we come to? You have a tree, you have an ecosystem and most importantly you have the roots. What I've tried to do is to show the connections between what we do in the small decisions in the classroom, in the home, and how that actually feeds out into the system that we seek to create going forward and our responsibilities and opportunity for creativeness in that space. I've talked about ageing. This lady is cool. She's 105. And if you can read at the bottom, it's that she says that it was eating bacon was key to her long-term survival. She's apparently eating bacon every single day and sees that as being a necessity for survival. I find, first of all, I don't think she looks 105. But secondly, the joyfulness that I think we want to associate with every phase of our lives of not feeling the boa constrictor fear it's going to close in but looking to the fact that you can be opening up those new chapters at any stage, and so many men and women are doing that through internet-based things and through travel opportunities and so many different opportunities, so many different ways. But again, sharing that message, helping the generations to come and ahead of us to, to see that there are great things that are still there is, I think, very important for the social fabric. I don't agree with Madeleine Albright, but I couldn't resist putting it in. A special place in hell for women who do not help other women. Um, I hate comments like that, um, but I'm quite glad she said it. Uh, because I think that the duty of women who do succeed, and many in this room, are going to be in positions where you can make choices that help other women. I think, quite candidly, I think you should do that. I think it's very, very important to understand that this, forgetting any terminology of glass ceiling, but looking for opportunities to really enable women and the more feminine ways of trying to deal with collaborative structures and changing the way organisations currently work is a really um, important opportunity going forward. So I prefer this quotation, which in fact is linked to my own organisation, Salzburg Global Seminar. Uh, from Margaret Mead, really the doyenne of anthropology. Never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. It's the only thing that ever has. So women 
men, neither of us, are small groups. But we do have that ability to shift the course of history. And I think that in the centenary year of World War I, that's a, a message that I wanted to sing out. So I would love now to take some questions. I had meant to stop halfway, and then I got carried away, because this is the terrible thing of women. Um, but uh, please throw out violent disagreements um, and fire away. Please. Oh. <laughs>